Well, this is everyone's favorite passage. I know you've been waiting for me to get to it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We pray that our hearts would be truly humbled before it as we uh, consider what you have for us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. amen. I want to begin with an Old Testament story from 2 Samuel. It says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and on the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The word wife should have like ended everything right there. David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am with child. That's pretty scandalous. That's a, a wretched moral failure on the part of a king who once delighted in being an obedient man of God. We've been looking at Psalm 18 in Sunday school, which David wrote when he was young, and he talked about how righteous he was. And here he is, who should have known much better, being very unrighteous. And it gets worse, of course, if you know the story. He didn't have the modern solution. They couldn't kill the child in the womb to hide what they did, so he had her husband, um, who was a soldier, killed in battle. He set it up so he would die by enemy hands. And he thought he'd covered it. So obviously this took long months for this to happen. And tells you a lot about David's spiritual condition at the time. He was just going through the motions of faith. He obviously wasn't walking with God in any meaningful way, daily, like we all should be doing. And he cared more about what people might think than, um, uh, and his own embarrassment, I think, than what God thought. So God has to move so 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take his own flock and his own herd from an animal so to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him rather he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him then David's anger burned greatly against the man and he said to Nathan as the Lord lives surely the man who has done this deserves to die he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion Nathan then said to David you are the man Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be yours, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken 
the wife of Uriah the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. So what do we have here? Well, one thing we have is the means that God uses to rescue his sons and daughters from a ruinous path in sin. So David sinned, obviously, with a woman, not his wife, and he did all this, these machinations to cover it up, and he was just drifting down a path of spiritual shipwreck, and somehow he either justified it over his own mind or just simply willfully just pushed God away for all of those months through that time period, out of his mind, out of his affections, the affections of his heart. We can do that too. Be like that. And God could have let David go, right? All right. But he loved him. So he pursued him. And notice how he pursued him. He sends him a man. He sends him Nathan the prophet to tell him to his face what God knew to be wrong. And he repented after the confrontation. There were still consequences, but he was forgiven and he was restored. So you need to pay close attention this morning because what we see God do for David is actually what Jesus instructs us to do when we know that a brother or a sister has fallen into sin and has not repented. We're supposed to follow the same path. This might surprise some of you what we're gonna look at this morning because um, if you're kind of new around here, you may not have ever been in a church that functions according to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, but um, being obedient to Christ in this way of dealing with sin in people and confronting them about it in a loving and compassionate way, um, it just doesn't fit what a lot of churches do today and sort of their frame of mind for ministry. Um, The method often seems to be in modern churchianity, um, seek not to offend, right? Never offend, just entertain, and try to slip the truth in there while you're entertaining people. That's kind of how a lot of churches operate. The problem is, if you read Matthew chapter 18, you can't sneak it in. It's unsneakable. I don't know if that's a word, but I just coined it. You either have to obey Jesus or you don't. That's kind of how it lays out there. And, and doing what Jesus says in Matthew 18 it makes people realize, people that are just around, people that are in a congregation, it makes them realize that Christianity actually does entail moral obligations. And it, it accepts the idea that God is holy, not just fun. And he expects commandments to be obeyed. And doing it might offend and it might destroy the dreams of your megachurch to actually deal with sin in a direct way. But that's what we're called to do. So when you're not doing it, there's consequences for that because that's being disobedient. You're actually denying the lordship of Christ over his church and over his people and you forfeit your right to call yourself a church if you don't follow the prescriptions that Christ gives in Matthew 18. At least that's what the Protestant reformers believed. I'm a creed reader, if you know me. I love to read the old creeds and probably the, one of the, well, probably there's two really epic reformed statements of faith, but one of them is the Belgic Confession of Faith written by a man who was 
martyred for the faith in 1567 but adopted by all the churches in that area it's come down to us um, in fact we've taken a portion of it and put it in our own doctrinal statement but the Belgic Confession says there's three signs of a true church in other words everything was going on back then everything was in upheaval they said well what's a true church you know people can get together and call themselves a church what's a real church what characterizes it and here's what the Belgic Confession says we believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully by the word of God what is the true church for all sects in the world today claim for themselves the name of the church we are not speaking here of the company of hypocrites who are mixed among the good in the church and who nonetheless are not part of it even though they are physically there but we are speaking of distinguishing the body and fellowship of the true church from all sects that call themselves the church the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks here they are the church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel it makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them and then three it practices church discipline for correcting faults if any church does those three things they're a true church that's what they're saying in short it governs itself according to the pure word of God rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head by these marks one can be assured of recognizing the true church and one ought not to separate himself from it so the three things the gospel the sacraments and what they call church discipline and those words church discipline are the words that Protestants generally use to describe what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew chapter 18 so church discipline is necessary it's a, a God given function of the spiritual body his body the church it's Christ's command and we forsake it at our peril we're at the peril of our witness, I mean. Uh, if you don't do this, you're denying significant things about him. So I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard of situations or probably maybe even been in situations where churches have known scandals going on within the congregation or even among the leadership and nobody does anything about it. Some of you have come from churches like that, I know. That's sin on the part of the church itself when nothing is done. And we have very ins specific instructions throughout the New Testament to deal directly with sin for the good of everyone, the good of everyone involved, but especially for the reputation of Christ in the church. So the basis for all the other New Testament teaching on this, and there's quite a bit, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians 5, there's tons of areas you could go to look at how this is done and why it's done, but it all centers right here on Matthew chapter 18. That's where it all comes from. Many churches, even those who profess to be Bible churches, don't practice this anymore. The reasons, um, I guess there are many. The two I, I've heard or I know of is, it, one is that it, like I mentioned, it clashes with church growth philosophies. That church is supposed to be sweet and light and fun, and you just sort of try to slip in truths about Jesus as you can. Something, something should never upset people it should never bother people that are in the congregation that's a really bad reason to disobey God um, because he's not going to bless that in the ways that want, you want it to be blessed anyway if you don't <laughs> obey him and then there's the other reason which I think is probably the, the most common is it's just really hard to do that people don't like confrontation and it upsets people and let's not be confrontational about anything it can be painful and it can be very unpleasant but you know 
We're not called to be fearful and timid. And I'm not a confrontational person by nature, but I'll obey God if he wants me to graciously tell somebody that they're in sin and they need to repent. And there's consequences for not repenting. Because we serve the Lord. So even if it's painful, we have to serve him, right? And we do it exactly the way he tells us to do it. So the church is not a social club, right? Good. At least three people agree with me. (laughs) Jesus did not die to redeem for himself people zealous for potlucks, concerts, and church socials. That's not not what the text says. Read Titus chapter 2. He died to redeem for for himself a people zealous for good deeds. That's what he did. So the church is Christ's body, his chosen means of presenting himself to the world. And we have this mission, this, uh, this mission to faithfully represent him as he is in all that he is and carry the gospel of God's saving grace to the ends of the world. And we possess the truth that will help, well, it, well it's the only way, knowing this truth is to save people from divine wrath. And we're supposed to be a community of heavenly citizens living on earth and this, this earth, is, this world is supposed to be a place that's alien to our thinking and what we're committed to. Church is about, well, it's about sin and redemption and heaven and hell and holiness and purity and integrity and covenant keeping and God's holy laws and his saving love in the gospel in Christ. It's all of those things. So nowhere are the issues of sin committed by one claiming association with Christ more relevant than actually in the church. I mean, if somebody says they're a Christian and they're living in sin, then it's the church's job to address that and deal with that, right? So when somebody says, I'm a Christian, and then directly, intentionally violates the moral principles that everybody in the world knows that Christians are supposed to live by, it's the church's business, Just like David's sin was Nathan's business. It's the church's business to to address it. The early Baptists, way back in the Reformation days, they they called this fraternal admonition. I like that. That sounds better than church discipline, doesn't it? Fraternal admonition. Fraternal means brotherly, right? Brotherly admonition, admonishing one another to follow the Lord and do the right thing. They believed, in fact, this is what made them Baptists, that a person... The whole world baptized people when they were born, basically, right? Infants. And when the Reformation happened, that was the Baptists were the ones that said, hey, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be doing it scripturally. But um, they believed that a person could only be baptized, be baptized if they were old enough to understand their accountability to the church for their sin. That was sort of the dividing line. Not just like, oh, are you kind of ready? No, it was like, I get it. You're going to hold me accountable. And once you got to that age, then you could be baptized if you agreed that that was true. For us, in our church, when you become a member of the church, you actually sign something as part of your membership relationship with our church that you understand that the church follows fraternal admonition. Although I think the statement says church discipline. In fact, it actually says in our constitution, it says, the pastor and board of elders shall constitute a committee on discipline. They shall seek to interview and counsel members violating their Christian obligations or conducting themselves in such a manner as to bring reproach upon the church and shall endeavor to restore them to the path of fellowship and Christian duty. Failure to secure satisfactory evidence of repentance shall necessitate reporting the offenders to the church for appropriate disciplinary action. Anybody that joins this church says, yes, I get it. That's what we do here. 
So let's see what our text actually says. Remember, we're in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is um, driving home to his disciples several key principles which they are supposed to take to heart as they are preparing to assume leadership when he's gone. They don't even get that he's leaving yet totally, but he's training them for that. And we talked about the last few weeks here. The first principle was humility, and Jesus defines humility as humble service. The discussion of humility came about why? Remember? Because the disciples were arguing about what? Which of them was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? And Jesus sets a child before them, and he says, unless you become converted and become like a child, you're... You can't even enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Then verse 5 in Matthew 18, he talks about the little ones. These are the the either young or young in the faith or weak believers. And he emphasizes the need to care for them and receive them. And in verse 6 and 7, he pronounces a curse on anybody who would lure one of his little ones into sin. He says it would be better for you to have a millstone put around your neck and be thrown in the ocean better than that than what's going to happen if you lure one of his little ones as he puts it into sin. And then in verse 8 and 9, he admonishes all of us to deal with our own sin drastically. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. Those are metaphors. (laughs) But to take it really seriously if you've got sin in your life and to deal with it very seriously. We're called to holiness and you need to do whatever you need to do to not sin. And in verse 10, he solemnly warns his disciples against despising his little ones. And then he tells the story about the shepherd that loses one sheep and has a hundred and one of them goes astray and he still has 99. Instead of saying, well, I've still got 99, he goes and finds the one. And he says, if you don't go find the one that's straying, you're despising my little ones because you need to go and bring them back. We all have that obligation in the church family to find the strays and bring them home. That's part of what it means. It's really easy as a church leader to ignore the faltering brother or sister, especially when two other people take their place who think you're wonderful. Well, these two think I'm great, so if that one leaves, that's an easy thing to do. But that's not what we're called to do. Jesus warns against having a poisonous heart like that, a prideful heart. He says the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all, right? So all of that, the the deadly reality of sin, the need to radically deal with it in our own lives, the awful punishment for those who are terrible examples to the little ones, the shepherd who seeks the single straying sheep, all of that feeds into Jesus' teaching on fraternal admonition or church discipline. Human beings are are prone to failure and weakness. It's built into us, even Christians. So there must be a mechanism to deal with stray sheep of every kind, high or low, important or unimportant, rich or poor, it doesn't matter, in the church we're talking about. Verse 14, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. How do we keep them from perishing? How do we express God's love to the one that's at the risk of perishing, who's wandering? Well, the answer is through this process of church discipline that he gives us by loving correction, dealing with sin as sin, calling it what it is, revealing to the lost sheep that he or she is deceived and needs to wake up and return to the fold and 
serve the Lord Jesus, and you see right away that he gives a process for doing this. And this is what we are called to do, and this is what so many churches don't do anymore. They used to do it. Almost every church used to do it. And the process is designed in a, a really gracious manner toward the sinner. I mean, it's really gracious. He really is thinking through um, the appropriate way to approach and, and giving every opportunity to the person in sin to, to turn. And so it has four steps in the process. And what Jesus really focuses on is to keep the whole thing as quiet as possible, as private as possible. That's probably the best way to say it, to make it a private issue. So we're all responsible for this, so pay attention. Step one, verse 15, if your brother sins, tell somebody else all about it. No, that's not what he says. (laughs) Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's it. There's fraternal admonition right there. If your brother sins or your sister in Christ sins, go to them, say, hey, you know you're in sin. You can't be doing this anymore. And if they say, like David, you're right. I have sinned against the Lord. You've won. It's over. If you know, you gotta go. If you know that a brother or sister is in sin, you gotta go. You gotta go talk to him. It's hard, but you gotta do it. That's what love does. This is usually as far as it goes, as far as it should ever go, because most Christians are open to correction. We've all read through Proverbs, and it's a wise man that it accepts reproof, right? Because he wants to be corrected. That's, that's what the Bible says, and most people are like that. If you're walking at all in the Lord, you're pretty open to being corrected by other people. Because we all have blind spots, right? When you know a fellow believer is in sin, you have this moral obligation to lovingly tell them what they're doing is wrong and bring, them, bring it to their attention and help bring them back on the right track. You need to do it. It's the, the kindest thing you can do to another human being is to help them out of their sin problem. And then nobody else needs to know. If they say, you're right, I, I'm stopping, help me out, Nobody ever has to know about it. You don't need to talk about it to anybody else ever. It's just private. He says, you've won your brother. I don't need to know. None of the other elders need to know. You've solved a problem. Good job. There's no need ever to broadcast another person's faults. If they listen, if they listen, you've won. You've reconciled your brother to Christ. So avoid gossip is really how this is designed. Well, what if the situation doesn't improve and what if they're not responsive? What if they say, hey, I'm just gonna do my own thing? And I'm... Well, then you go to step two and that's verse 16 and that is private but it's expanded a little bit. It's a private conference, okay? If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. So we're still trying to keep the circle of awareness small. We're hoping for a good end to the matter in a quiet fashion. And step two does a number of things. It it gives the person in error time after the initial confrontation to think about it. You know, people sometimes get really defensive when you first approach them and point something out in their life. They're like, well, who who are you to tell me what to do? That kind of a thing. But if if there's anything of the Holy Spirit in their heart, they'll start thinking about it and God will start working in them and saying, you know, they're right after, you know. And then when this... You come with a couple more people, they're way more open, hopefully, 
but it gives them that opportunity. It keeps it private, again, as long as possible. Facts need to be confirmed because sometimes people will accuse somebody of something they're really not guilty of and they feel like there's nothing wrong. Really, honestly, there's nothing wrong. And so other people can confirm whether that accusation is legitimate, what their actual thing is, and all of that. Hear it out. Hear how they're responding, if they're humble or not, and all of that. So that's really important. Other witnesses can bring this kind of objectivity to the situation to see what both people have to say. Because if the sin is against you, like if I say, well, you sinned against me, then it's better to have some objectivity in there if the person just doesn't respond because they're mad at you or whatever. So it really helps to have other input there. And then if a rebuke is still in order, the person doesn't repent, it strengthens the rebuke to have other people there, to have other people saying, you know, you do need to repent from this. This is sin and you need to change it. To have several godly people telling you that, it's a, it's a helpful thing. Also, the other witnesses can bear witness that the offender, um, to, the, to the manner that the offender was de- addressed by the person. In other words, if they say, oh, these people came and they were, this is how, this, you've probably heard people say this. They came, they were so mean, they were just so self-righteous and all of that, and the other witnesses are listening to the person lovingly and gently and biblically talking, you know, and, but then the other person, when they tell the story, it's how mean those Christians were to me and all that, these church people were. And so the other witnesses can be objective observers of how that really went, because some people are nasty, but if it, they weren't, then they can say, hey, they were so gracious and so kind. So that's another reason. There's all kinds of reasons to have this second thing be just a little bit wider, but still private. So the desire in all of this is always to have the person turn from their sin and get their life right with the Lord and walk in a godly way and not to punish them, but to restore them. That's always the purpose of this. So let me give you some advice on this, though. Step two. If you take two other people, one other person or two other people, pick godly people. Whatever your condition is in life, pick the godliest people you can find to come, okay? That just helps. So um, let me just encourage you to do that. People that know the scriptures, people that have mature judgment, people that you trust to be wise, those are the people to bring in on the second, the second step here. And so that might be the time to involve some people from leadership. doesn't have to, but it might be that time. If they repent, what? It's over. It's over. Never goes beyond those two or three people. Nobody else has to know. It's done. If their offense was against you, you forgive. That's it. You forgive. It's over. Luke uh, 17.3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. That's it. So church discipline is not about excluding people because they don't measure up. Working with sinners can be a a long, painful process. It's wearying. It's heart-wrenching. It's frustrating sometimes. And it would be much easier to be happy with the 99 sheep and let the one go. Oh, I don't have to worry about that person anymore. But we're not called to be just a holiness club either. You know, we're called to be shepherding souls, nurturing souls, raising them up. Help the weak is the words the Apostle Paul uses, help the weak, not kick the weak away. So before we go to step three, let's talk about our attitude and all of this. You can just maybe flip over to Galatians chapter six real quick. When you're called upon, you know about a situation and it's your duty to go and talk to them, how do you do it? What's your attitude supposed to be? Well, Paul says in Galatians chapter six, verse one, brethren, 
Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So you're not going to the person as Mr. Something. (laughs) Right? You look to yourself. Which is exactly what Jesus said to do in um, Matthew chapter 7 when we were there, right? Judge not. He doesn't stop there. He says, judge not lest you be judged. For in the manner you judge, you will be judged. So you are supposed to judge, but you're supposed to look to yourself. What's he say? Take the log out of your eye before you, you take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do take the speck out, but make sure that you're in a good place. So you want to have to look to yourself. That's what Paul is saying. Gentleness, humility, an awareness of our own weaknesses, our own sins. Really, you know, it's just applying the golden rule. How would you like to be confronted if you were in sin? Well, I'd like people to be nice to me and gentle. Yeah, so be that, be that, be gentle. Take note of Paul's warning here, looking to yourself that you too will not be tempted. It doesn't mean tempted by what they're doing. It means tempted to be prideful or arrogant or self-righteous. That's the temptation for the person bringing to somebody else's attention their sin. He says, make sure that's not you. Look to yourself, be gentle, be humble. So that's exactly what Jesus was saying. Take the log out of your eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. Be humble. Okay, back to Matthew 18. Step three is a public announcement. So you go through the first two steps and they're just gonna do it. This is who I am. This is my life now. I love this sin. This is my favorite sin in the whole world. I don't even think it is a sin, actually. You know, and I don't care what the Bible says. Um, So that the next step is to bring it to the whole church family. Verse seventeen: If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now I've been here at Acton Faith Bible Church almost thirty years. It'll be thirty years, I think, in January or February or something. So that's a long time. This doesn't happen very often. I mean, I'm just trying to count in my head. It's maybe six or seven times in 30 years. So it's not like it happens that often that it goes this far. But it does happen, and we will do it. Um, And it doesn't happen the next day. Same thing. Give them time. After the second meeting, we give people time to think about it. We might try some other communications gentle communications, uh, private communications. But step three, ask the whole church to be a part of the process then, to be in prayer. I would say prayer and fasting. It should grieve us if somebody in our fellowship is caught up in sin, not, oh, look at them. It's, um, oh, how can we help them? That's, that's the attitude. So um, everyone then finds out what's going on and starts to pray. And if you know that person or if you have a good relationship with them or if you just feel led of the Lord, go to them and you be another voice to say, please give up this sin and come back to Christ. So the idea of the church as a body is central here. You know, that's what the Bible calls the church, the body of Christ. We're members together. And we don't let members of our physical bodies wither and die, do we? We go get somebody to look at them and take some medicine or something. Nor should we let members with whom we have the strongest link of all, which is a spiritual link, we shouldn't let them wither and die either. Not if we can save them. But sometimes a person is so committed to sin, they won't listen to the whole church body and they don't care 
And every godly friend or acquaintance they have could admonish them and come to them and they don't care. So they say, uh, I'm just going to be this or do this. So step four, verse 17, and if he refuses to listen to the, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That doesn't mean get him a job at the tax collector's office. <laughs> In Jesus' day, everybody understood what those words meant. A, a Jew had no contact with a Gentile beyond absolute necessity. They would not go into a Gentile's home. They would not interact with them socially um, like that. That's, it, that was very self-righteous, but that's how they behaved. And a, a Gentile home was defiling, so they wouldn't enter it. And tax collectors were... That was the lowest form of life on earth. They were traitors to the people, collecting taxes for Rome. Everybody hated them. They were ostracized. Jesus picked one to be one of his disciples. In fact, he's writing this book. (laughs) So it's not like a mean thing. The church word for this is excommunication. You've probably heard that term. It means we're not in communion with you until you repent. That's what that means. So this person is treated no longer as a member of the redeemed community. They're excluded from fellowship. Everything is not okay. That's kind of what this says. Everything is not okay. And it's not to be done pridefully or with a haughty spirit on the part of the believers in the church. There's no room for pride or smugness or anything like that. Just grief. It's a grievous thing. Painful. Because they have set themselves outside of Christ's body. And that is just a sad, tragic thing. By their total disregard for his lordship over their life. Being comfortable in their sin. Being comfortable in scandalizing the name of Jesus. So they just have to be, it has to be clear that they're not part of what the body of Christ is. It has to be made clear. So the church makes it clear. We can't, let the name of Christ be associated with scandal and sin. That's just not right. So we deal with it. And step four happens after every possible effort has been made to bring about repentance and restoration and reconciliation, and that's the last step. We do have some model cases in the New Testament. First, uh, Second Thessalonians chapter 3 is one. First Corinthians 5 is another. I'm running out of time, so I won't go there. But look at Second Thessalonians 3 real quick. This is a brother that won't work. He's a bum, and he's bumming off the other saints. He can work, he won't work. And that's sin, and it's a scandal. If he professes Jesus, and everybody knows he's a bum in town, say, and he's part of that church, uh, that's a sin. So Paul says, um, let's just go down to verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, and do not associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. (gasps) Oh! Putting people to shame? You can't do that. That's the one thing we're not allowed to do in modern American society. Yeah, well, that's what the Bible says to do. Let them be ashamed of their behavior. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That's really important. Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. They're not your enemy all of a sudden. But... He does say, do not associate with him. So now we haven't discussed the issue of authority here. Does the church have a right to do this? Does the church have a right to disassociate somebody from the church? 
Where does that authority come from? Well, hopefully you've noticed it's come from Jesus. But it also comes from Jesus right here in this text as well. Uh, verse 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul says, We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the, to the tradition which you received from us. It's under the authority of Christ that we make that decision. And to the unrepentant man, he says in verse 12, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Just, just telling him what he should do is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the authority of Christ. And nowhere is that more clear than in Matthew chapter 18. You can flip back there now. Verse 18, 18, 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And again I say to you that if two, or two of you agree on earth about anything they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered it together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now I know so many people misapply those verses and talk as though it's talking about prayer that if two or three are gathered and they agree about something that God's gonna do, it, that's, a, that's not about prayer, it's about church discipline. It's about making this step, this fourth step. That's what those verses are about. Truly I say to you, when he says that, he means sit up and pay attention, get this straight. Even a few believers have the power of binding and loosing when they agree together about a brother in sin and that they need to go through this process and if the brother doesn't repent, he needs to be put out. I've done this, um, been a part of this process in, in small Bible studies. And in fact, I have a letter in my home from a person we did this to many years ago before I even came here that um, thanking me profusely for doing that because he came back eventually to the Lord. He went all the way through four, four steps, we disassociated ourselves from him. He missed us. He missed Christ. He missed being in fellowship. And he repented and came back. And we were friends until he died just a few years ago. But um, that's how this works. That's what this is all about here. So the church has the authority to bind, that is to withhold fellowship, to recognize formally this sort of state of alienation from the church that this person is in, and the church has the authority to loose, that is to forgive, to take the shackles off, to say, yes, welcome back. Our arms are wide open for you. It'll be like nothing ever happened as soon as you repent. We'll love you forever. And the verb tenses in verse 18 are probably best translated shall have been bound or shall have been loosed. In other words, um, when the church acts in discipline, guess what? Jesus stands with the church. That's what he's telling us. It's bound in heaven. When you make that decision on earth, it's sealed in heaven. We agree. So the person would say, well, that was such a mean church. I'm going to find a nice church where people aren't... So well, that Jesus is with the church that went through the discipline process. People get so deceived in their sin, they say, the church has no business in my, in my life. They, they have no say in my life. And they think they can have God and have their sin too. That's what they think. I can have them together. That's a person who's bitten the apple, if you will, you know? Uh, Satan, that's exactly what Satan wants people to think. You can have God and sin too. Just keep them together. That's a delusion. When somebody stands on the receiving end of church discipline, Jesus stands with the church, and that means the offender is out of fellowship with him not just the church. You can't be disciplined by a church and then 
go love Jesus and be a wonderful Christian. You can think you are, but he's with the church. It may reveal that person isn't a Christian after all. Or it may mean that God will do his discipline thing. Hebrews chapter 12, God disciplines every son, right? He's a disciplinarian father as well as a loving father. Now, can this authority be abused by a church? Absolutely, absolutely. Churches abuse this process of discipline for selfish reasons sometimes or improperly. But you know what? That doesn't mean you don't do it. Right. The police can abuse their powers, right? Judges can abuse their authority, right? Uh, The government can abuse its citizens, right? Does that mean we shouldn't have police or judges or governments? Of course not. Abuse doesn't mean don't do something. Abuse means do it right. Make sure you're doing it correctly. If you don't, if, if you didn't have all those things, there'd be chaos, and there'd be chaos in the church if the church didn't practice fraternal admonition. Of course, Jesus doesn't um, stand with a church that abuses this authority or misuses this authority. He might stand with somebody that's being beaten up by a church, and that happens too. But he does stand with churches that do it faithfully and right and humbly and for his purposes. So binding and loosing, it's a gift of God for our good. It's, it's just basic accountability. And where a church must come to that decision and does so with love and equity and desiring restoration, and then that action has been affirmed in heaven. That's what Jesus says. It does no good for the sinner to run off to another church and pretend that never happened because it's, it's sealed in heaven. You can fool the other church, but you can't fool God. David didn't say, get me another prophet. I don't like Nathan. He didn't do that. He said, I've sinned. You're right. You can't run away from Jesus. You can't deceive Jesus. And be assured, if a person is saved, the Lord will apply discipline for the person that runs away and tries to live without repentance. Verse 19 talks about asking and agreeing. So as we discuss and discern and pray, there must be agreement as to about what to be done. And then when that agreement is there, we need to see that the accountability is, is done in the right and proper manner. Another good example of church discipline is, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I won't go through all of that because we're out of time, but it really deserves a very careful read. But Paul's quite upset with the church for not putting somebody out that was scandalous. They were, making, they were committing the sin of not dealing with sin. And so that's what that whole chapter is about. And he says, um, without repentance, he must be removed from your midst in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2. And the action is to be taken in a public meeting, verse 4. He says, when you are assembled, that's when they're supposed to do it. The action is taken in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 4. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, Paul says, the purpose is to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's an amazing statement. It's kind of shocking. But what he's saying is exclude him from the Christian community so that he's out there in the world. I mean, the Bible says Satan is the god of this world, right? He's the ruler of this world. That's what the Bible says. His, his realm is called the domain of darkness. So put him out in the darkness, And if there's something there that loved the light, they'll want to be back with the light, right? That's the idea. The unrepentant sinner needs a reminder of what that domain is like. He needs to be reintroduced to the world that opposes God. And if the Holy Spirit's in him at all, he's going to feel the... He's never going to feel comfortable in the world. The Lord's going to work in him. That's why 
this process takes place. Maybe the church has sheltered him so long from the world he forgot what the world was like and he needs to be back out there again. So finally, church discipline is not only good for the unrepentant person, it's good for the whole church. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If you let this guy stay, it's going to spread like leaven throughout the congregation because everybody's going to think, oh, I can, get it, I can do anything I want. Nothing's going to happen to me. So the church as the bride of Christ, it's the bride of Christ as well as his body, and the bride is supposed to be pure, right? So you're supposed to keep his bride pure. It is a hospital for sick souls, the church is, but it's not a hospital that lets people die without treatment. What kind of hospital is that? Oh, you're going. Good luck. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in the next room. Um, listen, as a pastor, as a brother in Christ, and all of us feel this way, we will stand by your side for a very, very, very long time, if you have some sin struggle in your life, we will fight with you against that sin. This only kicks in when you say, I'm not fighting anymore. I just like to do this. This is my thing. That's, that's when this process starts. If you're battling something, we'll battle with you. We'll battle with you. You wrong me 70 times seven, I'll forgive you every time. But it's when you won't repent. That's when this kicks into the process here. I will do whatever I can as long as you acknowledge the word of God as your authority and you see your sin as an offense to God as something that needs to be fought by you. If you see it that way, I'm with you for a very long time, very long time. We all know that battle. We've all had it ourselves in some area or another. So it's when you give up the fight when you give up the fight, you walk into the enemy camp. That's when we have a problem. And you might have done that because you don't care about sides. You're so focused on yourself and your sin. You know, oh, whose who's camp am I in? God's camp or the devil's camp? I don't know. You're not even thinking about it. You're just wandering around. But when you leave Christ for sin, you have joined the opposition. That's what you've chosen to do. You've joined the enemy of God. And if you forsake the right way and walk or wander or stumble across the line into the enemy camp, then this process of church discipline goes into effect. You can't be in both camps. What did Jesus say? You cannot serve two masters, right? You can't do that. So if you're stubborn in your sin, we will do what's best for you according to the word of God. And we will protect the church and we'll protect the reputation of Christ and we will pray for you for a very long time but if you're going to not repent you just can't stay here that's how it works let's pray Lord we love you and we love those that are in sin so much we love you so much that we are going to do this as it comes to be necessary this practice of discipline is your good gift to the church so we treasure it for you and for our own good. Make us humble as sinners and as instruments of correction. Always to your glory, we ask in your name. Amen.